Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Pulp Today. Pause while I take a drink. Uh, today we're going to talk about a book. I'm pretty sure I've had this copy of this book since I was maybe 11 or 12 years old. Let's see if there's a copyright on this paperback. Eh, 64. I definitely was not alive then. Anyway, H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Much adapted. Oddly, I don't think the book has ever been done real justice except by one thing, and we'll talk about that later. But uh, I want to dive right in. Let's, let's read the very first few pages of The War of the Worlds. Book One. The Coming of the Martians, The Eve of War No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own, and that as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their insurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves, and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Early in the 20th century came the great disillusionment. The planet Mars, I scarcely need remind the reader, revolves about the sun at a mean distance of 140 million miles, and the light and heat it receives from the sun is barely half of that received by this world. It must be, if the nebular hypothesis has any truth, older than our world, and long before this earth ceased to be molten, life upon its surface must have begun its course. The fact that it is scarcely one-seventh of the volume of the earth must have accelerated its cooling to the temperature at which life could begin. It has air and water and all that is necessary for the support of animated existence. Yet so vain is man and so blinded by his vanity that no writer up to the very end of the 19th century expressed any idea that intelligent life might have developed there far, or indeed at all, beyond its earthly level. Nor was it generally understood that since Mars is older than our Earth, with scarcely a quarter of the superficial area and remoter from the sun, it necessarily follows that it is not only more distant from life's beginning, but nearer its end. The secular cooling that must someday overtake our planet has already gone far indeed with our neighbor. Its physical condition is still largely a mystery, but we know now that even its, in its equatorial region the midday temperature barely approaches that of our coldest winter. 
Its air is much more attenuated than ours. Its oceans have shrunk until they cover but a third of its surface, and as its slow seasons change, huge snowcaps gather and melt about either pole and periodically inundate its temperate zones. That last stage of exhaustion, which is to us still incredibly remote, has become a present-day problem for the inhabitants of Mars. The immediate pressure of necessity has brightened their intellects, enlarged their powers, and hardened their hearts. And looking across space with instruments and intelligences such as we have scarcely dreamed of, they see, at its nearest distance of only 35 million of miles sunward of them, a morning star of hope, our own warmer planet, green with vegetation and gray with water, with a cloudy atmosphere eloquent of fertility, with glimpses through its drifting cloud wisps of broad stretches of populous country and narrow, navy-crowded seas. And we, men, the creatures who inhabit this earth, must be to them at least as alien and lowly as are the monkeys and lemurs to us. The intellectual side of man already admits that life is an incessant struggle for existence, and it would seem that this too is the belief of the minds upon Mars. Their world is far gone in its cooling, and this world is still crowded with life, but crowded only with what they regard as inferior animals. To carry warfare sunward is, indeed, their only escape from the destruction that generation after generation creeps upon them. And before we judge them too harshly, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction of our own species has wrought, not only upon animals such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its own inferior races. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely wiped out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of fifty years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? And one more piece I want to read. Ah, here we go. This is chapter 17. The Martians have arrived. They've started killing everyone, destroying the world with their heat ray. 17. The, the Thunder Child. Had the Martians aimed only at destruction, they might on Monday have annihilated the entire population of London as it spread itself slowly through the home counties, not only along the road through Barnet, but also through Edgware and Waltham Abbey, and along the roads eastward to Southend and Shuberinus, and south of the Thames to Deal and Broadstairs, poured the same frantic route. If one could have hung that June morning in a balloon in the blazing blue above London, every northward and eastward road running out of the tangled maze of streets would have seemed stippled black with the streaming fugitives, each dot a human agony of terror and physical distress. I have set forth at length in the last chapter my brother's account of the road through Chipping Barnett, in order that my readers may realize how that swarming of black dots appeared to one of those concerned. Never before in the history of the world had such a mass of human beings moved and suffered together. The legendary hosts of Goths and Huns, the hugest armies Asia has ever seen, would have been but a drop in that current. And this was no disciplined march. It was a stampede, a stampede gigantic and terrible, without order and without goal, six million people unarmed and unprovisioned, driving headlong. It was the beginning of the rout of civilization, of the massacre of mankind. <laughs> now, of course, a modern reader, that word inferior is going to jump out at you when he's talking about Tasmanians. But remember the context that he's putting it in. We feel... 
we in the terms of European imperialists felt about Tasmanians and others that go unmentioned by him exactly as the Martians felt about the humans. And since we know how we're going to feel about the Martians, I think it's an interesting point, uh, even if clumsily made. Uh, the rest of the writing is, of course, extraordinarily good. That first paragraph of the first chapter is interesting to read because I think two of the most uh, amazing actor-slash-narrators in the English language, I've heard them read it, uh, Richard Burton and Morgan Freeman. And I will say something for H.G. Uh, Wells in terms of foreshadowing. If you know the book, if you've seen the movies, if you haven't, you can stop listening right now. Foreshadowing, what destroys the Martian invaders is humble bacteria. They basically catch the common cold and they all die. Uh, which is the ironic conclusion. All of the powers of man can't destroy them, but the Martians literally forgot to wear spacesuits and they all died. I read this book a hundred times, probably, uh, in, you know, either the whole thing or a chapter here, a chapter there. I've seen all the movie versions of it. And it blows my mind that knowing as I do the end of the book, it was only watching the Spielberg movie and listening to Morgan Friedman say the lines that I went, oh man, he tells you how the book's going to end in the first paragraph. As narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Microscopic particles. That's what's going to kill the Martians. And I'm talking about them on page one. It's good stuff. Um, a word about the many adaptations. There's the 1956 movie with Gene Barry, who is a kind of disposable leading man, but the special effects are great. Some of the updates to the story are great. The floating Martian war machines instead of the walking Victorian steampunk tripods that we that are in the book. Uh, the, the idea of a force field, which has been lifted by every alien invasion movie since, most notably uh, Independence Day. There's the Spielberg movie, which suffers a little bit from post-9-11-itis and from Spielberg-itis, which is the unnecessary inclusion of a bad father narrative onto an already compelling story. Uh, I hope he gets that out of his system at some point. Um, it, it, it's an unnecessary distraction and otherwise very well-made movie. Uh, I will say that the, the, one of the changes is that the Martians, of course, are not called Martians because we now know that all of that stuff about life on Mars is uh, not the kind of life that's going to end up inventing war machines and coming to Earth. Um, but he, they have the, the war machines springing up from under the Earth, which I think was some, like, enemy within post-9-11 thing. And no, not good. Uh, I would also say that currently, at, at least at the time I'm recording this, there are two shows on streaming networks, one literally called War, and the, War of the World and one called Invasion. And ironically, Invasion is a more interesting adaptation of War of the Worlds than War of the Worlds is. Sadly, everyone seems to have gotten into a mode where all post-apocalyptic stories have to be The Walking Dead. So the, the 
the War of the Worlds adaptation named the War of the Worlds literally just turns itself into The Walking Dead almost immediately. And instead of giant floating or walking tripods with heat rays, we get robot dogs for some reason. I, I, I couldn't follow it. Invasion is a little more interesting and gives a little more of the H.G. Wells, even though the influence of Wells is not acknowledged anywhere, gives a little more of the H.G. Wells ground-level I don't know what's going on, I don't know why anything that's happening is happening feel, uh, which is a really good one in a good post-apocalyptic story. But it's interesting that Wells, writing this in the late 19th century, it is a criticism of imperialism uh, at, at a time of the height of the British Empire. And one would not call it, you know, it's not a particularly woke narrative, hence the inferior Tasmanians. But it it does basically say, hey, there's someone out there, you know, we control the world because of our navy. What if someone had a navy with laser beams and they were smarter than we are, uh, then we're just as screwed as we have screwed over the whole world. And I think that makes it a valuable read today. And on top of that, it's just, it is a terrific post-apocalyptic adventure story, one of the very first of its kind. I'd also like to give a shout out to my favorite adaptation and ironically the most faithful one, but it really depends on your patience with prog rock. In the 1970s, a producer named Jeff Wayne did a musical version of War of the Worlds. It's narrated by Richard Burton, as I previously mentioned. It's got Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues singing a couple of songs. Uh, but it is, it's a really remarkable thing. And I think it's on the Spotify's and the Amazon music and all that. And I heartily recommend looking it up. Because a lot of what comes out of Richard Burton's mouth in the, the musical is H.G. Wells' excellent writing, and that makes it worth listening to. So that's today's post-apocalyptic episode. Hope you enjoyed it. See you on the next one. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.